Now they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lips. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Ah! I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. So I didn't check the news in like five minutes. Did we lose anyone else in that amount of time? <laughs> Maybe just in the intro. Are somebody else was fired. Tumbleweeds going through the State <laughs> Department in the White House. Wow. 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 Eat your salad, Rex. Eat your friggin' salad, Rex. <laughs> Dumbass. <laughs> Welcome back, guys. This is Barstool Politics. I am your host, Nick McGuire, who's apparently very bitter this week. Uh, joined, as always, by uh, Dr. Bill Muck from North Central College and Dr. Phil Barker from Keene State College. Hi, guys. How we doing? Hi, Nick. Hi. <coughs> we're, we're, we're not doing great. We're really not doing great. <laughs> we're doing great. We're doing the awesome. The country, the democracy. Meh. Yeah. What humanity. Else? It's fine. Don't Rex. Worry about it. <laughs> Just eat your salad. Yes. Shut up and eat your salad. Yeah. A lot to go over. Um, it's uh, it's a, a weird crossover between domestic and, and foreign policy today. So uh, might as well just dive in and go through all of the shit that went on this week. Uh, Tillerson and Pompeo and the CIA and the North Koreans and apparently firing people over Twitter. <laughs> it all intersects. It's and it, just bad. It feels like a foreign policy issue, but you're right that it's domestic and international. Um, yeah, so let's to, to remind the listeners, on Tuesday, President Trump tweeted out that he was firing Secretary of State Rex Tillerson and replacing him with current CIA Director Mike Pompeo. Poor sleepy Rex didn't even get a call from Trump and instead found out he had been fired when an aide showed him Trump's tweet. That's terrible, right? Uh, so somebody wasn't, else says, apparently you've been fired, Mr. Secretary. Wasn't he told to watch for a tweet? <laughs> so John Kelly, I guess on Friday said there might be an important tweet you should pay attention to <laughs> so you may actually i think the, the the wording was you may get a tweet so that's that's how the president indicates something's <laughs> going to happen ominous at all oh so it again shakes up the foreign policy team as they head into the major negotiations over north korea and iran it's just uh i, I don't know there are so many things to talk about should we start with the way in which he was tired, fired, the legacy of Tillerson. He's tired and He's fired. Tired. Yes. I don't, I, yeah. Phil, what's going through your head on all of this? You feel bad for Rex? No. <laughs> I, mean, I think we should start with that. I think we should talk about the legacy of Rex Tillerson because that, you know, the, the how he was fired is sort of salacious and it's fun to talk about. But the bigger issue is the change that's occurring. And it. My my first reaction to this was uh, to be um, a little bit afraid <laughs> of, <laughs> of the, again and continuing change. The idea that Rex Tillerson is on his way out and who's going to replace him, but then when I really get down to it, I have a hard time being sad about Rex Tillerson being gone. He he was terrible, terrible yes, yes. as Secretary of State. 
Um, and I know the State Department, you know, there were some tweets uh, that came or, or statements that came out from the State Department indicating support for him. But um, lots of interviews I've seen from people within the State Department talking about how he has left the department in shambles, how they're glad to see him go. And so I don't, you know, Pompeo is not somebody that helps. I don't particularly sleep better at night knowing that he's in charge. But I think almost it's hard to imagine somebody a whole lot worse than, than Rex right. Tillerson. Yes. Hmm. Pompeo's definitely more of a foreign policy hawk. He's not a guy that believes in negotiations. I mean, he is somebody who's pushed hard on North Korea. He's pushed hard on Iran. Uh, but he, you would think he's more competent in terms of foreign policy than Tillerson, at least in terms of getting things done. Because, uh, yeah, Tillerson, he gutted that department, gutted the budget. Uh, it's, it's an awful legacy. He may go down as one of the worst secretary of states in history, yeah. but yet you still feel bad for him because the way in which Trump fired him. And you, it didn't even tell him. Do you think he was he was he incompetent or was he just that, that those were his views on, you know, government and the role of the State Department? And because he, he he did have, you know, through his experience with Exxon and he had all of this international knowledge. And um, I don't it, that's I think what was so disappointing about him. I had concerns about him from the beginning, but he's obviously a smart guy, um, worldly. And I, so I don't it, is it that he is incompetent or is it just that he didn't do anything? Like, was that part of his, you know, worldview? I mean, I, I think the, the lesson that we've learned over the past year and a half or so is that being a business person who has exposure to the global system, uh, doesn't necessarily make you a good government employee. Uh, I, I think he was worldly, worldly in the sense of, you know, oil production and geopolitics and how those two things intersect, not necessarily how to deal with failed states and rogue regimes who have nuclear weapons. And yeah, he, he just he didn't have the pedigree to be dealing with all those things. The sad part is he was still somewhat of a moderating force in the administration, right. one of the last few that are left. I think the last few who are left are about to be gone anyways. What really worries me is that the statements from Trump are he's saying that he got rid of Tillerson because they had fundamental disagreements about the you know foreign policy and what needs to be done and how to handle the North Koreans. You don't get good policy by just having yes men around you. You get right. good policy by conflict and discussion and resolution and debate. And there's there's none of that left yeah. at this point. Why is right. it keep popping? <laughs> um, and then Pompeo is he's known to favor military intervention and action. And he's a little bit hot-headed when it comes to that stuff. Whether that'll be tempered as he moves into this role, that remains to be seen. But the fact that he's coming into this and people are already saying that based on his previous experience is a little tiny bit worrisome. It, it, it is somewhat surprising that somebody who ran Exxon would be so bad at the logistics of running the State Department because you would think those skills would translate, but they haven't. Right. And then the other fact I think you brought up, Nick, is that you know Trump didn't like him. There, and I didn't like right. him in the sense that they disagreed on issues. And it's troubling that Trump was saying, because of these disagreements, you've got to go. Um, so it, apparently in these meetings that there would be times where Tillerson would push back and say, well, that's not how I see it, Mr. President. And for Trump, that's that was too far. Like it was, you know, questioning his authority. Um, it's it's uh, yeah, I think he deserved to be fired. He was terrible. 
But I agree. The, the reason he was fired wasn't because he was terrible, but it, right. it was because he disagreed with Donald Trump. And so right. now Trump is creating a, a a team of America first loyalists who reinforce his own view. And that's that's troubling as well. Yeah, I, 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 I can't help but feel like the fundamental disagreement that uh, that there were policy disagreements, but I can't help but feel like if Rex Tillerson had been willing to play the game, the the Trump mm-hmm. game, um, he just like when you saw pictures of him uh, at cabinet meetings or talking to Trump, he he just his heart wasn't in it. He wasn't going to kiss Trump's ass to to to, uh, you know, to to keep Trump happy. And it, it just seemed doomed from the start. And so I. There's part of me that thinks that despite their disagreements on policy, if Trump, if if Tillerson had been willing to kind of play the Trump game, he still might have had some more success. I don't know. I don't. Maybe maybe he still would have. I think he probably still would have been out eventually. But um, but there's no incentive for like realistically, there's zero incentive for him to do that. He he ran fucking Exxon. Right, like you're right. a billionaire. There's you right. don't need that kind of aggravation at the end of the day. He was probably ecstatic when that tweet came through he was used to people kissing his ass (laughs) right yes yes. well incompetence is not a reason to be fired from the trump cabinet i mean ben carson it sounds like hud is a disaster it is imploding yeah betsy devos and and they're in his good graces because they do what rex didn't do which again is deeply problematic if if we think back to Obama, there was this like team of rivals dynamic where Obama said he was going to bring in others who were going to push him. Trump is the exact opposite of that. Uh, you come in, you support me, otherwise you're on your way out. And that's, I, I think that's a bad way to govern. It's a terrible way to govern. Good, okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, that's been something that, that you know, you've, you've seen this, um, you know, you see... Uh, when you look back through American foreign policy, you see contrasts between like um, I, between JFK and um, LBJ, right? On this this sort of notion in which JFK tried to surround himself with people who challenged his notions, and LBJ, you know, you you look at studies on groupthink and all of these other aspects in which LBJ was this really strong personality, and if you disagreed with him, you caught hell, and and it it it's just it's it's a bad leadership style. Well, and it also feels to me that there are legitimate differences when you talk about JFK, LBJ, other, you know, even talk about the difference between the Bush Bush W administration and Obama, but those felt like legitimate foreign policy debates. It feels like Trump's foreign policy is just idiocy, right? It's like terrible ideas. And now that, that cabinet is moving towards Trump's nationalist, isolationist positions. It just, it's... It feels like foreign policy, even though Rex was terrible, we're moving in a really, really dangerous direction. Um, yeah. Mm. I, I, at a time when we're now supposedly going into negotiations with North Korea, right? So the right. one time you would like a fully ready and loaded State Department, it's been gutted. The head is gone. You're bringing in Pompeo, who's not interested in negotiations. All of this is is suggesting that the only one that matters now is Trump. The rest of the cabinet doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um you have this. I, I, I mean, I have the sense that much of the rest of the world recognized that a long time ago, though. <laughs> so in true, that sense, yes. I don't know how much that really matters. Right. When you look at the way China and Saudi Arabia and North Korea and other countries have dealt with the Trump administration, they've, you know, cut through the others quickly because they realize that making Trump happy is all that matters. Well, and this was after we taped last week. It came out that Trump 
the North Korea negotiation. So the South Korea, there was a diplomat from South Korea who was in the White House, met with Trump, and he was the one who came up to him and said, hey, North Korea has approached us. They would like uh, to have direct conversations. And basically on the spot, Trump said, I'm in. Let's do it. Go ahead. You know, which is not how this normally plays out. Any kind of negotiations between states are a slow process. Mm-hmm. You don't get a, a head of state meeting right away. And Trump's like, no, let's do it. I'm, I'm aboard. This is great. You know, <laughs> so is I mean, I, Phil, where are you at on this? Is this <laughs> is this a good decision that Trump and Kim Jong-un are going to have a conversation? Is it a bad idea? I mean, in some ways, I don't know if it matters if Rex Tillerson and the State Department is gone because Trump wasn't going to rely on them anyhow. Right. Um you know, I don't know. I, in an abstract sense, the idea of opening dialogue is, I think, positive. Mm-hmm. I don't, I, you know, I think that's that's good. I mean, it is noteworthy that no other U.S. president has agreed to meet one-on-one with the leader of North Korea. Um, and I have to feel like those various, both Republican and Democrat presidents, <laughs> know something that I don't necessarily <laughs> know. Uh, you know, the U.S. has in the past insisted on if we meet with North Korea, it will be sort of multilateral negotiations. We're not going to essentially um, legitimize the the Kim administration by meeting with them one on one. And in a lot of ways, this is giving the North Korea regime what they want, some sort of le- some level of international recognition. Um, you know, ideally, you would you would use that as some sort of bait to get them to, you know, you, you want to see them start to actually dismantle their nuclear program or start to behave in um, a, what we would consider a reasonable way. And and if they do that, then we will meet with you. But what we've done is, yeah, we'll we'll meet with you. Like we've, we've sort of given away our, our you know, yes. we've, we've played our best cards from the beginning. And it just... For again, for a president who is supposedly known for being such a great negotiator, it just doesn't, you know, it, not that that was, you know, it was kind of well known that that wasn't necessarily the case before. But, uh, yeah, you see how that's not necessarily when when you just decide things on a whim, it, it it's it's problematic. So the idea that we're meeting with them is not necessarily bad, but the way in which we're doing it is is, yeah, concerning. I'm more okay with the fact that they're going to start with the head of state meeting. In theory, to me, this seems less problematic. And I know officials from both the Bush and Obama administrations have come out and said, like you said, Philip, we can't do this. You've got to lay the groundwork first. You've got to you know, build some rapport. And then you keep the carrot of an ultimate meeting between heads of state as the final prize. Like, if you behave, you get this. Now, my thought on this is that hasn't worked, right? It hasn't worked at all. Mm-hmm. So I'm okay with shaking that up and maybe seeing if you can't have some some progress because of a, a meeting between the heads of state. Now, that being said, I think Trump is totally incapable right. of letting right. that happen, right? I mean, so in theory, I say it's not such a bad idea that you would start with the heads of state, humanize each other. I mean, I think for Trump to be humanized by Kim Jong-un would be a good thing. It would decrease yeah. the chance of war. But, you know, it reminds me of, uh, you know, of Reagan and Gorbachev, like that kind of dynamic. That was very, very productive. They are not Reagan and Gorbachev. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> right. That's that's what I keep coming back to. So while in theory, this seems like a good idea, there's no way this could be productive. They're not going to either either Trump will be persuaded by Kim Jong Un in a way that's really negative for the United States or nothing will happen or he'll get mad at Kim Jong Un. So I, I, I don't know. I think this is. Not going to work out well. If it were Obama or Romney or someone like that, you would feel 
better about a one-on-one meeting. Yeah, because you could say, okay, let's let's begin that process. And I will say, you know, the end of the Cold War, it was Reagan and Gorbachev, that dynamic that enabled future negotiations, that relationship. Now, can Kim Jong-un and Trump have that relationship? I don't think so. It's maybe, just... maybe they'll find all sorts of things they have in common. Oh. I mean, that's the thing, though. You're, you're talking about probably the two most divisive heads of state on the planet. So realistically, you're right. I, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing to have the two of them meet because in the end they would probably be fairly inconsequential to major negotiations happening between the two countries. You have the North Korean military regime that's in place that is realistically the power behind everything, regardless of how it comes off. The caveat to that is you have Trump, and then you don't really have, as we've been talking about, anyone behind him that's giving any sort of different advice or strategic um, thinking. And and conflicting uh, um, notes and comments from the State Department and uh, other parts of the administration saying, yeah, we're going to meet. We're going to say that there are going to be no concessions whatsoever. They need to go through nuclear program, and that's it. That's the only way this is going to work. And there's no way North Korea denuclearizes, right? I mean, that's I, can we just accept, only bargaining chip? Right. That's a. There's no way they give that up. Mm-hmm. Do you feel, is there any way that North Korea reduces or, I mean, other than maybe reducing testing, they don't give up their nuclear no. weapons. No, yeah. not, not in any sort of short to medium term. <laughs> right. right. No. Right. Well, and that's the other red flag that goes off with all of this. So tying this back to the story we started with, which is that a number of reports came out this week that Rex Tillerson was cut loose in preparation for these talks. Right. Mm-hmm. And so if if Trump is going into these talks with the intent of sort of coming up with some negotiated settlement in which everyone is happy, you don't replace Rex Tillerson with Pompeo, right? You put If you're putting a hawk in place, that that is in, some, in, in a lot of ways signaling your intent. So if you think I'm going to deal with the North Koreans, I need to put in my State Department some guy who wants to go to war with the North <laughs> yes. Koreans. That says a lot about what what might come out of these talks. It doesn't give me a whole lot of hope that we're going to find some, you know, peaceful solution to this problem. This is such a good point, because the other rumor that's been breaking today is that John Bolton uh, is rumored to replace uh, H.R. McMaster as the walrus, <laughs> right, as the national security advisor. And recently, John Bolton has written a piece where he argued that it would be legal for the United States to launch a preemptive attack against North Korea. So now, if if he does assume that position of national security advisor, your national security advisor and your secretary of state are both hawks, arguing that the way to resolve North Korea is war. And your president says, "Hey, let's have a chat first. Like th- this does not yeah. work out well." So, the, the, I mean, we've mentioned it, or we've touched on it in previous weeks, that people who are some of the smartest foreign policy scholars that I know and that I you know follow out there have have indicated that for the past six months increasingly they are convinced that war with North Korea is not, not inevitable but increasingly likely more likely than not and so you know there's a part of me that wanted to interpret that as overreacting but as you start to see these changes being made in the foreign policy um, elite around Trump that that it, it starts to get scary especially when you think about the pretext of Trump saying, hey, I'm willing to have a conversation with, you know, we'll have this diplomacy. If that doesn't go well, time for war. Yeah. No, I I agree. I think this, while an improvement in terms of diplomacy, the long-term implications of war have have gone up. But realistically, go ahead, Phil. 
No, I, I was just going to say that the, the one potentially hopeful thing, I guess, is that Trump does change his mind really dramatically. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And so maybe in these talks, he decides that, hey, Kim's not such a bad guy. <laughs> We're not going to go to war with him. Um, that's that is an entire that, that seems to me a, a total possibility. They had a great like, time. We yeah. played some basketball. Yep. Dennis Rodman. If, yeah. if Kim, if, if the Kim administration is smart, they will start planning an elaborate yes. gala for, yes. the Trump, for Trump. <laughs> they when, are when the they best at elaborate galas. Too. <laughs> what were you going to say, Nick? Um, I forgot. Um, I, I mean, at some point, I, I while I, I, I do agree with you in, in some respect that war is increasingly likely i also think that there's going to be a point where congress and the legislative branch and the american people in general are not going to stomach the thought of a preemptive potentially nuclear war with north korea it like what is where is the breaking point is there a breaking point before we get to that level hmm People like a good war, Nick. That's true. But yeah. we've had so many of them. Yeah, there is some, Trump, some fatigue. He, people like a good war, and Trump doesn't seem all that concerned with like popular opinion <laughs> either. Oh, I, so. um, when you think about the rally around the flag effect of waging a war, he's got to go up. I mean, he's at right, you know the low sure. 30s, upper 40s. I don't know, That's man. A good question. <laughs> and and if, can, if, yeah. if we nuked North Korea tonight, would po- Trump's popularity go up or down? I, I up goes I, up, yeah, right? Yeah. It's it's a win for him. He's I, so low, Nick. I'm I'm gonna say this, and without being sarcastic, I don't think you're giving people enough credit. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a segment of the population that would be up in arms and just just livid about this, but they hate Trump already, and he they, he doesn't care about that group. And none of the people who love Trump right now are gonna be like, oh, nuclear war, I'm out. <laughs> it's like they're gonna be on board. Still. I mean, that's that's. That's game-changing, history-making shit that we're talking sure. about. That's I, unless you are the hardest of the hardcore, no one is going to support a preemptive nuclear strike on a country who has not attacked us yet. To to, to be fair, the the I don't know how much, I don't know how accurate this is, but in my mind, inherent in the idea of the rally around, so the rally around the flag, this idea, the rally around the flag effect for those of listeners who don't know is that when when a country goes to war the the president's popularity tends to go dramatically up so you saw this after september 11th in in the united states you see it in you know any, anyway there are lots of examples of it it seems like there's inherent in that in, the, in those previous examples that i think of september 11th or the falklands war with with britain and, and argentina there was some good uh story behind it like there was justification right. behind the war um, I'm not sure that I am convinced that the Trump administration can put out a good convincing story about why attacking North Korea is necessary. But I don't know. American, oh, just, I mean, they have nuclear weapons aimed at the United States. That right. might maybe that's enough of a story. You've got a great villain, Kim Jong Un. It's all you need to do is have that villain. You need to have the the Hitler, the Saddam Hussein, uh, and that becomes your your justification for war, which I, I hope you're right, Nick. But Dude, nuclear war. Well, it won't start that way. It'll start with conventional war, and then it'll drift into <laughs> nuclear war. If that makes you feel any better. <laughs> no, it doesn't. It does not at all. I, I hope, I hope. And I, I will say that the fact that there there's conversation occurring, I think, is good. But it is, it's a really dangerous place. And the fact that the administration is shifting in this America first loyalty direction, that you're getting rid of Tillerson, that 
you know, thank God for Mattis, right? I mean, that's the one thing Mattis, Secretary of Defense, is still there. He's got to be arguing against this. So as long as he's there, I, th- I still think there's a chance that we we miss this. So he's going to be gone next week? No, you can't Two get rid of Mattis is untouchable. He's competent. He's strategic. He's, you know, he's a popular guy. I don't think he can touch Mattis. He's, you know. You want to you want to bet? <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we, be- go, go ahead. Be- before we, I, I feel like there's there's, I know we've talked about this for a long time, but there's two ideas, and we can, I don't know, maybe, maybe we have time for both of them. One is that we can go back. We we started this by talking about the meat of it, but we didn't talk about the way in which Tillerson was fired. <laughs> we can go back to that. But I also there there was this article that I I sent to yes. you two, um, this week, uh, from Foreign Policy. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that basically they were talking to um foreign affairs officials, basically State Department and and Defense Department type officials around the world in their views on the Trump administration. And, and they were saying that the consensus amongst the world was that, yeah, Trump is weird, that 20 percent of what Trump does is really out there. But 80 percent of what Trump does is very much in line with U.S. foreign policy. And in fact, it's very directly traceable to the previous two presidents that if you look at the Bush administration, there was a very clear after after September 11th, very clear emphasis on unilateralism, basically screw the rest of the world, screw institutions. We're going to do what we need to do. Mm-hmm. And you can see that idea very much playing out in Trump and that in the Obama administration, other things as well. But this is kind of the one that stood out was that Obama um was oftentimes unwilling to take the advice of the foreign policy elite around him, right? Um, You Mm -hmm. could see that on Syria in which all the people around him were encouraging him to take one path and he wouldn't do it. And so these two trends about about sort of we're going to do it our way and forget this sort of intellectuals and the elites and the people who know what they're talking about, that they seem crazy in Trump, but they're actually not that much of a derivative, not that far off from essentially U.S. foreign policy over the last 20 years. And and at first I read that and I thought, ah, that seems crazy. But I, I mean, what what do you think? Is, is, is Trump's foreign policy actually insane or is it just kind of, you know, American foreign policy, just a little cranked up? More America than like the other presidents. Like he's, he takes what, the rhetoric to another level. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't necessarily disagree. I, I mean, I think in this particular situation, it's a little bit out of bounds, but overall, yeah, I, I agree in, in the statement that probably at least the past two, if not the past three or four administrations have gone down that road. I, I mean, Obama and the, you know, widespread use of drones and special forces and proxy wars that we had no idea were going on is clear indication of that as well, uh, on top of Syria and any other nation in North Africa at this point. It's, um, yeah, that's depressing. I, I don't I don't like that you brought that up. That makes <laughs> is, me sad. Is that a result of the increased importance of public opinion? In, so I, public opinion clearly plays a role in domestic policy, right? But it, it seems like foreign policy has, it's not that public opinion doesn't matter, but it, I don't know, it feels like the, the you know, going back to certainly Clinton, there is this real concern with approval and whether or not the people and and you to some extent, I can see foreign policy being driven by uh, public opinion, which is not. I don't know, there's the 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 sort of small D Democrat in me 
likes the idea that the government is answerable to the people. But the the part of me that recognizes that Americans are not particularly well informed about foreign policy <laughs> sees that as kind of troubling. And, and it, there was something nice about the insulation of the of the elite from kind of public opinion when it came to foreign policy. Yeah, I, I mean, my opinion on that, I guess, if you look at the the previous administration, uh, especially being out in D.C. at the time working out there. Uh, most people who worked in foreign policy um, or even just in governmental relations in general hated the administration because they were know-it-all elitists who felt like they knew better than everybody else. And I, I, regardless of what public opinion was at the time, they felt that they had the answers to the foreign policy questions that were being posed at the time. And that was clearly not the case when you're talking about the Middle East and North Africa and ISIS and, you know, international terrorism in general, it was not a good eight years for that. So it's, it's such an interesting question. And I, I, I think there's some I, I read that article and I thought a lot about it. And I think there's a difference between chipping away at the normative order. And I think that when you're the hegemonic, when you're the most powerful country in the world, there's you create this order and you're not always going to follow the rules. And that's what previous presidents have done. What Trump is doing is talking about getting rid of the whole order. So it feels to me that there's it's not only a difference of degree, it's a different of approach. So, yes, Obama and yes, uh, George W. Bush were unilateral. They didn't always follow the rules. They didn't follow global institutions all the time. But Trump is arguing for those institutions don't even matter. So for me, it feels like a different a different way of thinking about that normative order. And that makes Trump more dangerous than previous ones. But it was a really interesting piece to think about that because we all we want to separate Trump as so distinct from everybody mm-hmm. else. Mm-hmm. But in some ways, you're right. He's, he's not. So. Yeah. The way you said earlier about how he in some ways he's the most American. Yes. Of the, like yeah. In this kind of classic American sense of American exceptionalism and, you know, these these trend the the sort of moralism that runs through american foreign policy you really see like shifted to high gear with trump he's willing to say and do things that americans often say but the president won't say and that's that's part of the problem of it all Mm -hmm. Mm. oh this is good we should talk about beers yeah yeah phil what what are you having uh, my first beer was a Harpoon Fresh Track. So Harpoon is a, a brewery up here in New England, um, and it, it is their spring pale ale, um, described on the label as bright, floral, and hoppy. And uh, yeah, it was fine. It was um, <laughs> it wasn't bright. <laughs> well, it it was not. It, I, I, it's, it wasn't bad by any means. I would gladly drink another one. But when I think about some of the other kind of spring pale ales, or more kind of citrusy, or you know, lighter pale ales that I've had. Uh, I don't know. It didn't. It it didn't strike me as particularly memorable. I don't know that it will it will stick with me. It was it was pretty carbonated, which I don't always love. And then the but but it was good. You know, I'd give it a B. Um, the the second one I just started on is a Brooklyn Naranjito, which I've had before, which is like this orange. Um, I don't even know. I haven't had a sip of it yet, but I had. I really enjoyed it last time, so I'm I'm giving it another go. Sounds good, Nick. You wanna you wanna start us off on the beer that we're having a Nick and I are having a special beer today. It's a special one. Yes. So we're having uh, an old naughty, uh, K N O T T Y, like like wood naughty. Yeah. Um, Why is it wood? So they uh, used uh, wood chips from two hundred fifty year old trees from around the area. So this is a very local beer that was a collaboration between a bunch of different breweries. Uh, and uh, proceeds and, and funds are going to the Naperville Parks Foundation. Um, 
but it's a uh, citra and a bunch of numbers and letters hopped hops and oak infused India pale ale with vanilla. So they chopped up the tree and put it in the beer barrels. So I, I, I need to clarify. Yeah. Because <laughs> I really like trees. Yeah. Was the tree like dying? Yes. Or did they just feel like we should cut the tree down and put it they in They didn't beer? want to cut it down. They had no other choice. It was, you know, about to collapse. And so what they've done, and it's really fantastic. They chopped it down and they've turned it into art projects and uh, they chop some of it up to infuse in beer. They're using it in all sorts of different ways. So, so the wood that they put into your beer came from a sickly tree. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I think it was sterilized Delicious. Oh, okay. So it's a citrusy IPA with some vanilla in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is a unique tasting beer, but it grew on me. It's very pungent. Yes. Yes. Very, uh, very hoppy. Um, light vanilla. Um, definitely a good amount of citrus. Um, if you're going to make a beer out of a tree and only make so many of it, this is the way you do it. <laughs> yeah. So pungent is not a word that I put in my category of good terms to describe a beer. Uh, uh, what's what's a better term? Like kind of a a, a very um, distinct, uh, juicy hoppiness, I guess. Okay. That sounds better. Yeah. It yeah. does sound better than pungent. Doesn't it? Thank you. <laughs> I didn't want to say drinkable. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a cool can. No, this is it's a great project, and uh, so we've got three local breweries: Salamoth, uh, the Butcher, and Miskatonic, who are doing this. And there's actually a second batch that they are they're making as well, which is more of a, a milk stout. And that one, they I guess has to sit for a while. Yeah. So so thank you, Nick, for getting this. Oh no, thank thank you for drinking it with me. <laughs> um, but yeah, we we love the local breweries around here. They're they're really good. So yeah, definitely was uh, we were interested in trying them. Speed round? Yeah. Let's do it. All right. Don't mess with Putin. Putin, he'll get you. All right. your ass. <laughs> All right. On Monday, British Prime Minister Theresa May said that Russia was, quote, highly likely responsible for the attempted murder of former Russian double agent Sergei Skripal. Is that how we say his name? I've, I've... Yeah. Okay. Sounds good. Whatever. Um, and his daughter in an English city of Salzburg on March 4th. The, quote, military grave, grade nerve agent used in the attack has been identified as Novichok, a substance developed by the Soviet <laughs> Union in the 1970s and one of the deadliest chemical weapons ever developed. Uh, he and his daughter were attacked uh, more than 10 years ago. He was arrested and charged with working undercover for Britain's MI6. He was freed in 2010 by Russia and allowed to move to the UK, benefiting from a prisoner swap. He's now a UK citizen. He and his daughter remain in critical condition. Now, Trump has expressed sympathy with the UK, and elements of the US government have condemned this attack, but Trump himself has been somewhat restrained in his attack. So there, there's the Trump angle, but there's the, I can't believe Putin is doing this angle, which is, is to me, shocking. So when it first happened, you sent it was a tweet out from was it the Russian Foreign Ministry? Yes, yes. That's uh, in response to the initial story. Uh, the tweet was something along the lines of uh, he was a double agent working for MI6 or something. Yeah, he like wasn't. That. He wasn't a, a Russian spy. He was a MI6 yes. yeah agent. Yeah. Right. That that was their response, which was basically saying yes, we. This is why we, we did poisoned that. him. Yeah. Right. You should get the facts straight. They're not <laughs> running from this. Wasn't that from the Russian embassy? Yes. Yeah. In, yeah. So the, in the people the who are in charge of diplomacy right. are yes. the ones who are tweeting that out. So, Bill, why are you surprised by this? I mean, Russia has a long history of this. There have been a lot of people who have been uh, exiled from Russia for political views or for, you know, opposition to to Putin who have been poisoned. Right. This is a long line of these people. So 
it, at some point it ceases to be. And, and in fact, today there was an, I haven't I don't remember all the details. There was another story of another Russian exile in London who was found dead. And it's unclear. It hasn't been reported cause of death yet. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it seems like this is the way Putin operates. And the last one was Litvinenko. And I, I can't remember what year that was. But same yeah. thing. He was a Russian uh, who was living in London. And he was given polonium 210 or some, whatever, some dangerous polonium. Something in the 200s. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And he was very open. He's like, Putin did this. I will die. Putin did this. Right. I mean, then there was another guy. It seems to me it's so blatant now. Right. That it's Putin, brazen. They're not even trying to cover it up. Mm-hmm. Um. But this is Go this ahead. is why this is why it's important to have I it, it, I feel like it seems minor oftentimes that that or we joke about Trump's you know whatever friendliness with Putin but this is why it matters right you mm-hmm. you have to if if the US the most powerful country in the world is not calling him out or holding him accountable for these things then there, there's, of course, he's going to be like, he's, he's, he's being brazen about it. He's, he is, um, I mean, this is a message that he's sending to the, not just to the international community, but to people, particularly in Russia, right, to opponents to Putin. Yes. And, and if he can get away with it, then yeah, keep doing it. Well, you were saying uh, before we started recording that uh, Nikki Haley had a statement on this, condemning the Russians, correct? Yes. Directly, directly condemning them. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah, but still nothing from Trump. Uh, he released a statement, not not directly from him. Someone saying like, "We're going to get to the bottom of this. This yeah. is no good." And you know, if Russia's involved, they should take responsibility for it. But it's still, you know, it's Nikki Haley. It's some. It's not Trump himself coming out to Phil's point, saying this is unacceptable and pushing back. Putin is a bully, and you need to push back against that kind of conduct. And maybe that's why this strikes me is that. It's gotten so common with Putin. And again, we're talking about a chemical weapon attack here right. in a NATO country. You know, the idea that a NATO country is attacked, this is, a, this is a, a form of attack. And the United States and other countries should come to their aid and say this is unacceptable. And Putin should bear some consequences for this. Mm. And, and this is why, um, for whatever reason... It, it, Putin, you know, intervenes in the American election. So whether it had an effect or not, why would Putin want um, a Trump in president, right, as president? The, sowing discord amongst NATO allies um, is his dream scenario. So the fact that he can do this and there's not an immediate sort of universal condemnation from th- that there's this, you know, discussion or debate or question about what the U.S. is going to do is is exactly what he what he wants. Right. Um, he can do it. And then everyone can sort of fight amongst themselves as opposed to, uh, you know, again, we we I feel like we've said this before, but Russia is not a world power. I, I think yeah. we 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 are convinced because of the Cold War that they are, but they, they shouldn't be. They're not an economic power. They're not you know, they, they have nuclear weapons. And so they have to be dealt with but um we give russia far more credibility than they deserve when we allow them to get away with these sorts of things but i mean they've been so good at it over the past i don't know for five sure. to ten years yeah. uh, like even the statement by by putin afterwards trying to create doubt about who could possibly be responsible for it it was you know, separatists. It was the Tartars. It was the Jews. It was like you, the fact that you're even saying that, like there's no possible way that anyone could have gotten their hands on this particular chemical agent 
and you think that people are going to believe that. But you know what? People will believe it because there's enough plausible deniability and methods of disseminating information that they're really good at controlling that they could change the narrative, at least enough to create that little kernel of doubt. It's all fake news, it's right? It's all fake so, yeah. news. Yeah. The idea that in 2018 a world leader can accuse the Jews of doing <laughs> yes. this is insane. Insane. And well, and I mean, this is so uh, this is uh, opening a whole nother can of worms. And I know the bell just went off, but we've talked about in the past about, um, you know, the, the whole smoking gun thing and, and the ties between between the Trump administration and, and Russia. Um, and this is um, we, we talked about, like, when you start looking at all of the evidence that just starts to pile up. And this is like yet another like Russia is so blatantly violating not just international norms, but what is sort of in U.S. interests. And um, we're not responding and that you start to you just have to ask why there was another story this week about and we're not it's not even on our list and it should be about how uh, when Trump was putting together his cabinet, he was considering Romney. Did you mm -hmm. see the story of considering Romney for secretary of state? Yeah. And supposedly Putin and the Russians intervened and said he's unacceptable. The, the, <laughs> what? The PP tape is real. <laughs> so I, it's, it, there's something worse than the PP tape. That's right. <laughs> and you're right. The, the fact that there's no pushback is so significant. This and the Putin knows this, and so he is emboldened. This week he gave an interview uh, to a Russian press, and they were of course tossing him softballs. But one of the question was, you know, are you a forgiving guy? And he said, Oh, I'm very, very forgiving. And then they asked him, What could you not forgive? And he said, betrayal, <laughs> right? I mean, and in, in the aftermath of all of this, right? So this is him saying, like, I can't forgive betrayal. That's why I chemical weapon to some guy. I mean, it's, right. it's awful. He's, he's terrible. He's uh, a terrible person. Yes. We did good on that one. We did real yeah. good on that one. All right. One. Topic number two, Steve Bannon. Mm. Uh, Speaking he, of terrible people. <laughs> yes. He's on a populist tour through Europe. This week, Steve Bannon is uh, on a tour of sorts, spreading his version of populism and nationalism to a receptive European audience. In many ways, Europe has been ground zero for the sort of anti-establishment movement that Bannon helped to cultivate in the United States before being expelled from the White House and Breitbart News. Bannon's tour included stops in Germany, Italy, and France, where he addressed the far-right national front. In that meeting... Um, he said, don't be worried if they call you a racist. And uh, Nick, you got the, you want to play the tape? Hell yeah, I okay, do. Okay, let's, let's listen to Bannon. Okay. Let them call you racist. Laissez-vous appeler racist. Let them call you xenophobes. Mais laissez-vous appeler xenophobes. Let them call you nativist. Laissez-vous les appeler nativist. Wear it as a badge of honor. Now, Phil, <laughs> you like to wear your nativism as a badge of honor. <laughs> what are we to make of all of this? <laughs> <laughs> so I the my response to this is to so it's a bit like um some of the other ideas we've talked about uh in this in this episode in which this is where some of the stuff we were concerned about early on in this Trump administration matters when when Steve Bannon was he wasn't a nobody but he was a fringe character who had extreme ideas until he was brought in to be the president's top advisor and so 
that's the danger of someone like Trump. When he is putting these people around them, he gives them credibility. And so you have now Bannon going around Europe who should just be this should be a non story, right, that that he is is making these claims about screw it. If people call you a racist, stick to your you know nativist ideas. Um, you know, we that should be sort of laughed off as an extremist. But we can't do that anymore because he has been made relevant. He has been made um, a central political figure by Donald Trump. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Nick. Yeah. Um, I, I'll, I'll, I'll play devil's advocate on this one, I guess. Where I, I mean, he's, he's in Europe. And when we're talking about nationalism and the rise of the far right, I think you're, Europe is ground zero for a lot of that, you know, kind of, current movement that we're seeing what bannon is saying though or where where the uh the sentiment came from is from a place where terms like that nativist racist homophobe something like that have the meanings of those words have been somewhat stripped away because everyone who is on not even the far right, even the the moderate to slightly more conservative right has been called that at one time or another. The issue is that these are areas where those issues are really a little bit more raw and and juicy and uh, uh, um, a, a hoppy, a ju- juicily hoppy, uh, <laughs> pungent, pungent. But they're much more pungent uh, than they are here, uh, and that that rhetoric can have some very extreme consequences as we've seen throughout history and we're seeing kind of repeat itself now it's it's kind of concerning it strikes me as somewhat ironic that bannon is on is trying to create a global movement of anti-globalist right so he's trying to create this global populist movement but but that aside phil would you say that the anti-immigration debate in europe is uglier than what we see in the united states that's always my sense of it that that the, some of the conversations that occur there, even though in general I would say Europe is more progressive on a lot of social issues, that immigration debate, the the comfort with fascism, and some of the language seems uglier than what we see in the United States. Or is I don't know, how, is that true, or would you say that's an exaggeration? Um, I I think there's probably some truth to that. I, I think the 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 in my mind, the issue is that the immigration um, debate. So in the, in the United States, right, we have this sort of immigration debate that plays out on racial lines and cultural lines right. in in Europe. It plays out on racial and cultural, but also religious lines. Mm-hmm. And so when you have the, the past 20 years, um, you know, being sort of determined by September 11th and notions about Islamic terrorism and all these other things, I think that adds uh, a, another, you know, can of fuel to the fire. And so I, I think that, yeah, in a lot of ways that it, it, it plays out that way. Um, probably the, I mean, you have also historic, like there is, you know, there's these long histories with European countries and, you know, the Ottoman empire and all sorts of other elements. So, so I think that, yeah, in this current moment, especially with the refugee crisis and the situation in Syria and other places, I, I think that, yeah, very much. I think that's, you, you can't take out, I mean, we, we talk about in the U S you know this whole idea of um, why well, the my mind's gone blank that 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 uh, you know that essentially a lot of the Trump movement was about economic discontent, right? Yeah. But really, it was about race and 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 uh, you know culture and class and all these other things. Um, I, I think that that is there. 
those two intertwine in interesting ways. And so you have this really interesting mix in Europe where you have the September 11th and religion and Islam and these sort of cultural divides with the sort of economic collapse of Europe following, uh, you know, in the last 15 years. And it's it's kind of created a perfect storm. So I think in this day and age, yeah. And, and European countries have historically been much more culturally and, and racially or if not culturally, racially homogenous, right? And yeah. so um, we are a sort of a racially diverse country. So I, I think it does play out in frightening ways. Well, and the other thing is there's oftentimes more parties there. And so you might actually right. have a fascist party where in the United States we say like, oh, conservatives right. are fascists and or, you know, liberals are socialists. No, mm. in Italy, like you have fascists, right? So that's a fascist. For sure. And, yeah. and so then you can engage. I mean, Le Pen in in France, that is a very different immigration argument that she's making than the Republican Party is making in the United States. And that, that concerns me a little bit, that that language could could overlap and seep into the U.S. political system. Your, your, your point is really good about, um, you know, institutions you. matter. Right. <laughs> institutions matter. And the election styles of European countries, it, a party that gets 10% of the vote gets seats in parliament and in many of these countries not in all of them but in the majority of them and in the united states uh, you know a 10 percent kind of far right party might be able to shift the republicans a little bit but they don't they don't have they don't have the ability to sort of hijack the political agenda the way that that you you have play out in 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 some european countries you're saying Um, you have to keep the two-party system i hate the two-party system i might to keep keep the fascist out nick Oh, man. All right. All right. are no fun. Can we talk about Stormy Daniels? Yes, please. Stormy. I love this title. Stormy weather ahead for Trump. You love it because you wrote it. I know, I know. <laughs> All right. The scandal involving porn star Stormy Daniels and President Trump has moved to the courts. Daniels is seeking a declaration that the agreement drafted by super creepy Trump lawyer Michael Cohen is null and void. Cohen, in the meantime, is seeking to bar her lawsuit and stop her from discussing her relationship with Trump, and is even attempting to block a 60 Minutes interview. 60 Minutes is the best, Nick. Uh, Thanks, She did with Anderson <laughs> Cooper. In addition to the fact that the President of the United States has paid, and we know, hush money to cover up an affair with a porn star, there are some fascinating legal angles of this case. One is whether the payout made by Cohen is, in fact, a campaign contribution. The other was whether Daniels can successfully Mm -hmm. nullify the non-disclosure agreement. Now, while all the attention on the Mueller investigation has pulled us away, like, might it be a porn star that topples the Trump presidency? Hold on. No. Yeah. No. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, why not? (laughs) This, The fact that... If the $130,000 paid to her, was it all, even if it is just to prevent her from talking about this story, that is a campaign contribution, and it is illegal. It brought down, uh, what's his name's vice president? I can't think of his name. Uh, uh, Agnew? No. no. John Kerry's <laughs> vice president. Well, I can't think of his name. <laughs> John... No, this is terrible. His Whatever his name is. Yes, he was having the Edward. affair. Edward, John Edwards. Uh. He was paying hush money, and that was determined to be a campaign contribution. So, so, so you don't, you guys don't see, I, I think this has legal legs. No, I think it does. I think it does. I, I'm just, uh, after all the stuff that we've been through with right. Russia and the, like the, the mountain of evidence mm-hmm. of, of improprieties that occurred there, that if that hasn't brought him down, I, again, we've talked about how insane this is, that the president has had an affair with a porn star. Yeah 
paid her hush money hush and is me. now seeking a restraining order against her. <laughs> like that, that, and this is not even the major story of the news cycle. Yeah, it, it, it is that the, the Trump administration politics today are operating so differently than, than have they have ever operated in the, I mean, 20 years ago, right? The president of the United States had a consensual relationship with an intern and it, damn near brought him down right and so now it's just it, it is it is remarkable how far we have come um in our willingness to tolerate stuff in i i would argue in the name of partisanship right which is the the point that we keep coming back to so mm. i don't know I, I maybe i i do think it has legal legs i'm skeptical that it in the end i don't know maybe it is easier to tie directly to trump than than uh, than russia stuff you may be right, Bill. Stormy Daniels' lawyer went on, I don't know, MSNBC today, and they asked him if there was a tape. And he said, maybe there might be a tape. I don't know. Maybe there might be the, a tape. The restraint, the, 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 the language of the restraining order that they've sought, or, or the, I guess not the restraining order, the agreement included terminology or language regarding photos and videos that were... <laughs> <laughs> that obviously oh exists, <laughs> and, and Stormy Daniels apparently has talked to other to other porn star friends who have who have talked about this about how yeah Donald Trump would chase her around the hotel room in his tidy whiteies. <laughs> there are there are absolutely photos out there, and whether they come out or not is is the question. Oh my God, I don't know where to go, Nick. But no, now I'm sober again. I don't like it. <laughs> no, and, and I, here's the thing: I, what I have trouble wrapping my head around is now it's no longer a secret that he had an affair with a porn star while he was married. That's just accepted fact. And that he paid her hush money. So why is his lawyer arguing so hard that she can't speak about this? Because if it's just if she's just going to come out and say, yeah, we had an affair, we know that. So what is what is so important that he has to keep hidden? That's, that's what I wonder. It's got to be more than a tape, right? Because... The American public doesn't want to see Donald Trump running around his tidy whities That's not nobody wants to see that. Mm. There's got to be something. Nobody more wants there. to see it, but they all want to see it. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know whether it is the element of the the negotiation, you know, that he was putting pressure on her. Is there something else? There's got to be more there than just what we already know, which is there was a payment. He had an affair. He's a bad guy. He's a creepy guy. I don't know if there's anything more than that. But then why wouldn't In he just say? Whatever, done. Because he's Trump. Mm, that's true. He hates <laughs> to lose. He hates to lose. Like I, I think he will, he will continue to go after this to his dying breath if it follows him that far. He does not want to lose or give people any leeway to say that he is a scumbag like that. He wants people to like him. It, it, it's and, and like uh, on top of that, the likelihood that this is something that could potentially bring him down is slim to none. I mean, said Bill Clinton once. <laughs> it's a different time. We're, yeah, that's true. That's true. Yes, we've progressed so much. Um, it, it, there are so many other things that we are. Look at all this. We spent a half hour talking about him firing people over yeah. Twitter that's and true. nuclear war. And we'd even talk about the Thailand secret prison thing. I don't know that's how right. we skipped that thing. <laughs> but it, it like it. It's so far down the list of things that we should be concerned about right now that there's not even, it, it, in my opinion, it's not even on the radar. And I get there's legal implications to it. I don't think it's enough to actually do anything or that, that will actually do something to him. 
I saw a meme this week that said something to the effect that, like, you know how everybody says, like, if Obama had done that, and then, like, the response was, shut up, shut up, don't bring that up. <laughs> you know, that's, of course. Not listening. <laughs> yes. Um, I, I think that, I again, I'm going to keep talking even though the bell rang. Um, I don't even know why we have the bell anymore. In, I know, I know. <laughs> the bell is it still keeps us, it keeps yeah, it keeps us on track. Yeah. Yeah. In, in, in normal, normal political logic, I still think, Bill, that pictures of the president you know compromising pictures of the president are a way bigger story than someone alleging an affair with the president mm, and so true. if you if you abide by traditional political story rules then you want to keep those pictures yeah. or videos or that sort of thing out of the news I, why I would think that this plays by the rules of normal politics, I don't know. But that's that's the one sort of logic that I can come back to. Apparently, he, you know, there's that one picture you see all the time of him playing tennis in those white shorts where he's leaning over and Oof. he looks terrible. Why he, are you doing that? Because he hates that picture. Like he despises that picture. So like that could be the effect. If there's if there's something a tape or something that makes him look awful and Donald Trump naked, there's nothing good about that. Um, yeah, there's something a little weird about it because there's. Based on what I know about Donald Trump, it seems like the sort of thing that he would want to brag about, that he, you know, had sex with a porn star. Right. right. <laughs> it's a strange, like, it's a strange tension for Donald Trump. So mm-hmm. so we're transitioning from porn stars to Trump wanting to kill drug dealers. So, awesome. yeah. All right. Speaking at a wild rally on Saturday, and we're not, to your point, Nick, we're not even talking about the crazy rally that happened on Saturday uh, for congressional candidate Rick Saccone, who apparently is going to lose to a Democrat. Uh, Trump reiterated an idea he got from leaders of China, the Philippines and Singapore. According to Trump, the U.S. Uh, criminal justice system is too soft on drugs. Quote from Trump. You kill 5,000 people with drugs because you're smuggling them in and you're making a lot of money and people are dying and they don't even put you in jail. Is that true? think so okay i wasn't sure yet (laughs) he goes on it sounds convincing (laughs) quote that's why we have a problem folks i don't think we should play games uh trump has said he recently asked president of singapore if that country has a drug problem he said quote "Uh, we have zero tolerance policy that means if we catch a drug dealer death penalty now this is an idea he didn't just bring this up on saturday apparently within the white house he brings this up all the time and he really thinks that drug dealers are like serial killers and that the best response is to give them the death penalty. I think we just start disappearing people. <laughs> At least it'll, it, it'll be done. It'll be done. Like yeah. that. Yeah. Like that. It's, good. it's yeah. all over. I, Black vans. Phil, <laughs> this, is, this, is a, this is unconstitutional crazy. <laughs> right? I mean, all of this is <laughs> simplistic. I, Oh yes, I don't even know where to start. Um. <laughs> it reminds me of like, we we like Trump pulls us. All the debates go back to the 1980s. Like he's mad about protectionism, foreigners, like drug dealers. He probably thinks cocaine is like still like the big drug now. Yeah. Isn't it? Com- it's not. Isn't it, it's didn't not. Make a comeback. I thought meth was big these days. No, no meth is no. I thought they're back to heroin. Oh. Heroin, I don't know. Okay. Drugs, right? Drugs yeah. are bad. <laughs> all of them. All of them. <laughs> so they're, all, they're all bad. Say no to drugs. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this, this is no, no. I mean, there's so many reasons to be concerned about this, right? So, it, the throughout the past few weeks, we've talked about Trump's uh, affection for authoritarians yes. around the country, his tendency to war to lean. To, you know, last week we talked about how maybe someday we won't we'll have presidents for life. I mean. These are little things that are easy to dismiss as, oh, he's just joking or he's just, you know, he doesn't mean it. He's not serious. But again, 
it's like so many other things in that when you keep putting those on the pile, there's a hell of a big pile of things that Trump has said that should send up little warning flags about his authoritarian tendencies. That doesn't get into the fact that the war on drugs has been this massive failure that like when you have a country who has a tremendous appetite for drugs like we do and they're a wealthy country that putting drug dealers in jail doesn't make people stop wanting drugs. Uh, I mean, that sort of incarceration hasn't solved the problem. Killing them is not going to solve the problem either. But if you kill them, then they're gone. (laughs) Right. And no one will ever, no no one else will ever want to do that. Yeah. I'm sorry. (laughs) No, I think to your, to your earlier point, the fact that he's going to China, the Philippines and Singapore for logic on how to run your country models on democratic principle, by the way, you know, the Philippines who this week apparently is going to pull out of the international criminal court. And this is what Duterte, you know, the president of the Philippines has basically done is, He's killing drug dealers, and he's not even using the legal system. It's extrajudicial killing going. I mean, I I just, all of this is kind of insane talk, Nick. It's insane talk. I I mean, with those people, it's not insane talk. And like, why why would they even be part of the ICC anyways? He just doesn't want to get extradited somewhere when he's on vacation. Yes, that's true. They they have no power anywhere else. No. Yeah, it's, Uh, anyways. But but, the Trump is looking at this saying like, "Eh, killing drug dealers. Good idea. I'm put, I'm writing that one down. You know what? I, I I I could think of three presidents off the top of my head who probably thought the exact same thing, just didn't say it. They out didn't loud. say it out loud, Nick. That's, That's right. a big difference. difference. <laughs> it's a big difference. <laughs> <laughs> That's the key that captures Trump. You know, there, it's it, not in legislation we, yet. We all it's think fine. about things, and we're like, I'm not going to say that, and Trump keeps saying it. Free speech, man. He can say whatever <laughs> he wants. Right. So we can judge him for it. <laughs> didn't, am I imagining it or didn't Duterte imply that he had or say that he had personally killed a drug dealer? Mm-hmm. Killed yes. drug dealers? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, that he had gone out with a group. And so that's the thing. Like, it, And the Philippines was a democracy. I mean, I guess they're still technically a democracy. But this is terrifying because I think there's a lot of Americans who will, when they hear this message, and they'll say, like, drug dealers are bad. And yes, the kids at home. Drug dealers are bad. Drugs are bad. But we shouldn't just start executing drug dealers. I mean, it, it speaks to your point, Phil. This is a more complicated issue that deals with, you know, development and class and, you know, supply and demand and, you know, educational opera. All of these things. Like, this is what you have to grapple with. You can't just say, let's kill the drug dealers. But what do you do in the in the immediate future? I know. You build a wall. <laughs> we didn't. We, we didn't, didn't even build the. If we would, if we would build the wall, we wouldn't have to kill drug dealers, right? <laughs> you know, that's another. T- we didn't even talk about the wall, Nick. He went down and he saw prototypes of the wall this he week. He did. Yes. It's just. It's it's it's, it's bizarre. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. It's this is a very nuanced thing that. Like. The fact that, again, we're talking about this, like, he's going, we think, all right, he's going to have some sort of salient point on this, you know, that we would expect anything more than this is, I don't know, <laughs> I, like, I don't know why anyone thinks that it's more. It's, um, it's, it's immigration, and it's class, and it's economic disadvantage, and it's so many other things that that are that are the cause of the drug it's the pharmaceutical companies it's 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 crazy to think that yeah there i i guarantee there's a huge portion of the population who agrees with his sentiment it'll resonate yeah yeah but 
I mean, I don't. Th- it's not going to go any farther than this. He's just he's he's just an idiot when it comes to this stuff. Paul Ryan, I'll stop I it. <laughs> Y'all are both much more optimistic about the fact that the Ameri- that this won't go anywhere. <laughs> um, I, I, yeah, I mean, you you both were touching on this, and that there's this tend- there's this temptation when you talk about policy to just view it in purely moral terms, right? Good and bad, and and those people are bad, and and that's but public policy is so complicated and so complex and so many issues and beyond the good and bad you have to look at what works and what's effective and what's not and trump is fully in that first camp the simplistic good bad view of things and and that's yeah it's concerning Mm -hmm. this this last topic is going to be fun this is this this is is one of my favorite ones over the past few weeks So it appears that President Trump has been watching a little too much Star Wars these days. On Tuesday, at a uh, a rally with a bunch of Marines, he stated that the new national security strategy will recognize that space is a theater of war. And he floated the idea of creating a space force, a branch of the military that will operate outside of Earth's atmosphere. Play the tape, Nick. Yay. (laughs) You see what's happening? You see the rockets going up left and right? You haven't seen that for a long time? Very soon, we're going to Mars. You wouldn't have been going to Mars if my opponent won, that I can tell you. You wouldn't even be thinking about it. Space is a war-fighting domain, just like the land, air, and sea. We may even have a space force develop another one. Space force. We have the Air Force, we have the Space Force. We have the Army, the Navy. You know, I was saying it, the other day, because we're doing a tremendous amount of work in space. I said, maybe we need a new force. We'll call it the Space Force. And I was not really serious. And then I said, what a great idea. Maybe we'll have to do that. He sounds like my grandfather. <laughs> it felt like his teeth were falling out again. Oh. But, but, Phil, Space Force, pro or con? <laughs> con for so many reasons. I love these topics because so, they just make you mad. <laughs> so first of all, it's bizarre to me that that I we're going to Mars and Hillary Clinton wouldn't have done that is appealing to Trump supporters who are like anti big government. I don't understand how being like we're going to spend billions of dollars on going to trillions of dollars, whatever, going to Mars is like a yeah, we did it. But anyway, beyond because we're not going to spend it on welfare. That's why Hillary (laughs) hates Mars. (laughs) (laughs) So, I I mean, there's so many reasons to be concerned about this. But my thing that I went to immediately is that it is in violation of every major treaty on the subject that, that we, the Soviet, the Soviet Union, originally Russia, China, all the major countries have signed these the the Outer Space Treaty, which says that we will not militarize space. And the thing about treaties is that the vast majority of them have like they are mutually beneficial. So it's easy to think, wow, it would be great to have, you know, some I don't I don't even know what a space force would be <laughs> on solo. But, but you have to recognize that if you do that, so does everyone else. And so having nuclear weapons mounted on a satellite hovering above the United States, you know, a Chinese satellite or a Russian satellite is what that in, implies. Right. When we start militarizing space, it's not Star Wars. It's not Star Trek. It is Russia. It is Vladimir Putin who injects people with chemical weapons. <laughs> Putting a satellite in stationary orbit over the United States loaded with nuclear mm-hmm. weapons and chemical weapons. So that that's what it means. It's a terrible, <laughs> terrible, terrible idea. I mean, 
again, going back to these are right. Oh, did I not start the thing? It doesn't matter. That's okay. Yeah. Um, there's so many things going on. <laughs> um, this is this is another another idea from the eighties. Like, yeah. I mean, it's you know, it's it's, it's the Star Wars yeah. program, which realistically was fantastical at the time and was a good kind of um, deterrent and scare tactic with the Soviet Union. I, as much as you guys make fun of it, it's a legitimate potential threat now going forward, regardless of what. <clears throat> treaties were signed in you know the 60s and 70s uh i i really doubt that there is not a major geopolitical power on the planet who is not considering doing the exact same thing and you know space force and his rhetoric with this sounds completely idiotic but it's a legitimate threat that is relatively easy to implement now with the tech the technology that's out there you have private industry that is capable of helping foreign governments do this that realistically have no ties to their you know domestic counterparts uh for lack of a better term that i can't think of now because i'm two beers in um yeah i i mean i think it's something that we need to consider and not necessarily completely brush off but that's why the treaties matter though right so you no, say <laughs> so all countries acknowledge we're not going to do this because of the danger of one country doing this so trump mm. says it's a good idea to go to space and then like phil said russia does it china does it everybody is better off if we say space is just for astronauts how are those non-proliferation treaties doing by the way they're okay <laughs> they're okay <laughs> this, this also goes back to the the point we made it in the first topic in which we were talking about how the trump administration is sort of the logical conclusion of the bush and obama administrations because mm -hmm. you saw this with the bush administration withdrawing from the um anti-ballistic missile treaty and you know we we have in in our kind of concerns about global politics have withdrawn from these treaties and those things matter because i mean that that you're you're right the technology is available it can any country you know not any country a number of countries could do this but i'm i'm with bill and that that's why it is important to emphasize that those treaties matter when you start saying stuff like this and you have Vladimir Putin who you know like is going to take any opportunity any opening out there right if if you don't present this sort of international front that says that this is absolutely unacceptable, then, um, you know, then that door starts to creak open a little bit. And that's where it gets again. That's where these words matter. It's the mm -hmm. coming back to the simplistic argument. Trump just thinks like space weapons good. Well, space weapons could be good, but they can also be really, really dangerous. And it might be in the U.S. interest to create a global normative order while it's still the most powerful country to say we're not going to do this so that nobody does it and we don't have to worry about it. It's just, I don't, I don't know. I agree with that, that sentiment. I, I think in the real political situation that we find ourselves in um, globally, I, I find it very hard to believe that a country like Russia or China, regardless of what treaties have been put in place and what the global order is saying, considering how much they disregard the global order would not take the opportunity to have a strategic advantage mili a, a strategic military advantage that no one else at least at that particular point in time would have the same capability as 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 they would i i i agree that words do matter when we're talking again about countries like russia and china 
is again as much as they don't <laughs> as much as they sign on to these treaties they don't give a flying fuck about it they they do it because they're supposed to and because they're the big players in the game in the end nobody pays attention to this shit and nobody's going to pay attention to a space treaty because no one's thinking about it right now we we are I, 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 I I totally disagree with you. Fine. Because, because, Fine, I mean, Phil. So I'm going to throw your words back at you. Okay. You you have come back around to this idea a number of times in our discussion of North Korea that mm-hmm. like using nuclear weapons against North Korea is so sort of beyond the pale, right? That that you can't imagine the U.S. ever doing that because it is mm-hmm. so like like we're talking about a level of escalation that's hard to imagine. Mm-hmm. But the reason like the the reason why you feel that way is because the international community like so fully and wholly condemns the would so fully condemn the use of nuclear weapons that if the US were to preemptively nuke North Korea it would so thoroughly damage our international reputation and standing that the entire world would be against us mm-hmm. and so that's the same concept at play here in the idea of could could Russia weaponize satellites I'm sure they have plans to do it. I'm sure they could. They could put a a satellite in space tomorrow with weapons on it. Mm -hmm. But when you have the international community, when it is, um, when there is such a heavy stigma against it that it makes it unthinkable to ever do it. I agree. That's where it matters. I agree. And so that's where when you start talking about, maybe we'll do this, that's where that stigma starts to erode. And that's where, so, yeah. No, I I agree. I, I think there's a difference between having the capability and having the advantage and using the capability and advantage, which I think is technically the same argument as a North Korean argument. Regardless of whether they have the intention of using it, it is still a strategic advantage that then gives them another card to play in the international community that they didn't have previously, similar to North Korea. I don't necessarily think that they'll use it, I, 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 again, I think it's another tool in the arsenal that someone else doesn't have that means that they have to take this particular regime or country or administration more seriously than they did because they have another capability that was not there previously. What kind are, of we, are we okay now? Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah, well, I, I think we're, we're largely in agreement. I, but that's what's, that is also, to some extent, why it's weird to see the U.S. doing this. Yeah. Right? It, the idea that North Korea or Russia might threaten to put weaponized satellites into space as a playing card makes sense. The U.S., had, there's nothing to gain from doing this other than opening the door for your enemies to potentially go down this avenue. Sure. It just doesn't make any sense for us to, to, to talk this way. What kind of outfits would the Space Force wear? Uh, red, white, blue. No, man. Red, got, white, and blue, baby. Man, it's got to be like Silver Mylar. It's got to be like a 50 space movie. Yeah, I'm envisioning right. white boots. You know, I don't know. <laughs> Everybody's got to wear the same thing. That's right. They're all going to have the same haircut. It's going to look a lot like North Korea, apparently. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you, you remember last week when at the end of the episode we said we should do all of our plugs at the beginning of the episode? I was episode? just thinking that. I was thinking that, too, and then it, then it went yeah, away forgot about for it. a while. Well, um, if you enjoy the podcast, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul P-O-L, or Facebook Barstool Politics. Uh, we are on Untapped. If you're enjoying the the podcast, please share us with your friends. We're on iTunes and a gazillion other different iTunes, venues. SoundCloud, Stitcher, uh, Google Play Music. Um, I keep saying Blueberry because it's the one that sticks out of my mind every yeah. friggin' time. No, I like literally. That one. Every podcasting platform that you can think of, I'm pretty sure we're on it. Review us on iTunes. This helps. It's good. (laughs) It helps. It's good. It's really good, guys. 
All right. Um, it was a fun one. Yeah. Uh, really, really interesting, but I'm, fun. Next sorry. week. Sorry if I got worked up, guys. <laughs> <laughs> next week will be even more exciting. Let's hope not. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.